This weekend, we're going to talk about Lamrim. We usually hear that term, Tibetan term, translated as the graded path to enlightenment. But it's not really talking about a path, like something you walk on. But rather, this word translated as path actually means a state of mind, a state of mind that acts as a pathway that leads us somewhere, in this case, to enlightenment. So I call it a pathway mind, which is things that we want to develop, and in order to reach enlightenment, we need to develop them in a certain graded order. And it's dealing, or organized, I should say, in terms of three large levels. Each of these levels, of course, has many subdivisions. And it really is talking about a whole, when I say state of mind, it is a very large, encompassing mental framework. It is enumerated in terms of three types of persons, and these are persons that have a certain type of motivation in yes. life. And we are trying to develop ourselves to become this type of person with this type of motivating mental framework. So I don't uh, use the word motivation here in a simplistic way. But when we hear of motivation being discussed in Buddhism, what it's referring to is, as I said, a motivating mental framework. It's a whole mental framework. And it is made up of two parts. One is an aim, an aim that we have in life. And the other is what we as Westerners normally think of as motivation, which is the emotional background that leads us to this aim. Now, when we speak about these uh, three levels, each one is built on the one before, so it's cumulative. And so it's not that we have the first one, and then we stop having that first one, and then have the second one. So we have the first one, and then we have the first and the second one, and then we have the first and the second and the third all together. And it is uh, absolutely crucial to have these motivating frameworks in that order. You can't skip any. If you skip any, you don't have that state of mind that is being specified here. So if we look at the basic structure of these three graded or graduated motivating mental frameworks, first, as an initial scope uh, person, we are aiming for improving our future rebirths because we really dread and do not want at all to have worse rebirths. Intermediate level is that we're aiming for liberation from uncontrollably recurring rebirth completely, altogether. And the motivating emotion behind it is complete disgust with all the sufferings that are involved, and therefore we have what's usually translated as renunciation, which is the determination to be free of it, which implies the willingness to give it up. And on the advanced level, we're aiming for enlightenment, and we are motivated by love and compassion, thinking of all others and how they have a similar type of suffering and problems, and we want to be able to help them to overcome that. Okay, so very nice. This is the structure. For most of us, it doesn't mean too much, but there are so many books and material available on it nowadays that 
very easy to find out about it. Now, let me relate a little bit of my own personal history about how I learned about this topic, studied it. The reason for this is uh, I was asked to teach on this weekend about the abbreviated points of the graded pathway minds. It's a short Lamrim text by Tsongkhapa, but even though it's called the abbreviated form, it's much too long a text to be able to go through verse by verse in a weekend. And so what we decided was that I would just speak about the abbreviated points <laughs> of the Lamrim without actually referring to a text and how I have related to them over the years, which might perhaps be of some help to you. So I first came across the topic of 40 years ago when I was at graduate school at Harvard University studying Tibetan. And as part of a Tibetan course, we read a few pages from Tsongkhapa's large Lamrim text, the Lamrim uh, But I had no idea of the entire text or the entire span of Lamrim or what it covered. No idea whatsoever. This was before any of these uh, texts were translated into English or any other language, so before even Jewel Ornament of Liberation had been translated. So it was quite an unknown topic. I went to India in 1969 to do the research for my PhD dissertation. And although I initially went to write about a very advanced Tantra topic, I soon discovered that this was an absurd thing to try to do, despite the fact that my professor had recommended that I do this topic. And the Tibetan teachers that I contacted and worked with in India recommended instead that I study Lam Rim. So, very good, since that was the only item on the menu, I decided to eat it. <laughs> and I studied the Lam Rim and wrote my dissertation on the oral tradition, since I didn't even know that there were many other texts about it. So it was explained to me orally by my teacher and called it the oral tradition of Lam Rim. So this was a very exciting time in India. It was before the wave of hippies came. And it was the time when Carlos Castanetis was first writing his books. And so the few of us who were Westerners who were there in India with the Tibetans felt that we were on a similar adventure to Carlos Castanetis, discovering you know, some secret, special, magical teachings. And it was a grand adventure and very, very exciting. And the way that I studied Lamrim was a very traditional way which means that I was uh, presented a topic or a point within Lamrim. I had no idea what was coming next. And so it meant that you had to focus on each point individually as it came and digest it before getting the whole picture. And I was told that this was a topic that you study over and over again because each time that you study it, then you go back to the beginning and fit in what you learned later on in these stages. And the more that you can fit it together, the whole picture, the clearer it becomes and easier it becomes to actually develop these states of mind that they're talking about. It was based on this fact that I started developing the idea of explaining the teachings in terms of networks. Network in the sense that every point connects with every other point within the teaching. So 
it all networks together in a very complex way. And the more connections you know and can make, the deeper is your understanding. And this networking of all the teaching points pertains not just to Lam Rim, but to everything in the Dharma teachings. Another concept that I think helps in understanding this point I'm trying to make is the concept of integration. So all the teachings and all the points of the teachings integrate together. You can integrate them. And it's not just that we integrate all the teachings with each other, but we have to integrate them with all the different aspects of ourselves, of our life. And so, again, the image of the network pertains here because all the different points of the Lamrim and of the Dharma in general optimally need to connect with all the different aspects of ourselves and our lives. When we have succeeded in doing this, then we have actually integrated the Dharma in ourselves. And this point of the necessity to integrate the Dharma teachings with us is especially relevant in terms of developing these three levels of motivation. So, we look at the teachings of Lamrim, and when we uh, get the picture of it, we initially would understand it on a level that I've given the name Dharma Light. This is in contrast to the real thing Dharma, along the model of Coca-Cola Light and the real Coca-Cola. And so Dharma Light is a version of the Dharma teachings that is understood only within the scope of improving this lifetime. We are basically trying to make the samsaric life of this life now a little bit better by using the Dharma a little bit like using a form of therapy. And this is very good. It can be very helpful in this regard. There's nothing wrong with that so long as we don't confuse it with the real thing Dharma and think that this is all that the Dharma is talking about. And if most of us are honest with ourselves, we will admit, at least to ourselves, maybe not to the other people in the Dharma Center, but at least to ourselves, that in fact we are dealing in ourselves with Dharma light. Okay, so what would be a Dharma light version of the Lamrim? And I certainly, in my earlier days, drank Dharma light. That was my drink. <laughs> No, we look at the teachings. First of all, it says the root of the path, root of all of this is relying on the spiritual teacher. Okay, so I had a spiritual teacher. It was in India. I was very fortunate. Of course, it took many, many years before I understood what the word root meant. Like most other people, I mistook the word root to mean the beginning. That's where you start. Why? Because there it is, in the beginning of the presentation of the Lamrim. But that's not the image of a root of a plant. A plant doesn't start, grow from a root. A plant grows from a seed. A root is what a plant derives nourishment from. It gives the plant stability, because it grounds the plant, and it is that through which the plant can grow, because it gains all its nourishment. So, similarly, relying properly on a spiritual teacher grounds us so that we don't go off into weird fantasy trips about the Dharma and keeps us growing straight so that we don't stray away from the actual teachings, make mistakes, like a root anchors a plant so it doesn't blow away. 
And it's from the spiritual teacher that we gain the inspiration, which gives us the energy to be able to grow on the path. And, of course, the one through whom we get the teachings and the explanations. So you can also get it from books, but books are written by teachers. Okay, so then we go on, initial scope teachings, and talks about first appreciating the precious human life that we have, and so look at ourselves. I looked at myself. Okay, I'm pretty fortunate. I have so many opportunities to study. And then we think about death and permanence, that these opportunities in this life isn't going to last forever. Okay, I could relate to that. I, you know, would like very much to use my, my abilities, young, you know, strength, intelligence, and so on, to grow. So I could relate to that easily. Then the teachings go on to speak about the worst rebirth states that could follow in future lifetimes, hells, and so on. So now we start to approach it like an anthropologist studying folklore. Oh, very interesting. This is what they believe. And okay, let's turn the page. Go on. And then we have the teachings on refuge, which eventually I realized and learned is not just uh, some passive thing of, you know, going, oh, save me, save me, but it meant putting a safe direction in our lives, right? Following the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I didn't really understand what that really meant, although I have a list of all the qualities, but what did it mean? It meant, well, following Buddhism, and I knew it meant more than just wear a red string around my neck, but I didn't really understand the deep ramifications of what that actually meant. But okay, I took refuge, goes this direction. And then came the teachings on karma, which was basically avoid destructive behavior. And although that's presented in terms of you want to avoid destructive behavior in order to avoid worse rebirths that will follow, well, that wasn't really the selling point of it. But it just made sense. Be a nice person, don't hurt anybody, don't act destructively, don't act out of anger and greed and naivety and so on. And I could see how that could make me happier in life. So that was a perfect Dharma-like version of the initial scope. Mind you, at the time, I didn't realize that that was Dharma-like. I thought this was what it was talking about. Okay, now we go on to the intermediate scope. And the intermediate scope we look at the general sufferings of samsara and the sufferings of the better rebirth states. Well, the part about the god realms, again, was another lesson in anthropology. (laughs) But the descriptions of the general sufferings of samsara were far more relevant. We're always frustrated, we never get what we want, etc. These were quite wonderful and profound to think about. Then Intermediate Scope goes on to speak about the analysis of all the mental factors and all the disturbing emotions and how it's the disturbing emotions that cause our problems. And this was the most interesting part of the Laman discussion was to understand from it how various emotional problems and difficulties arose what were the factors, what were the causes, how it developed problems. This was great. This was far better than any course in psychology that I had had. didn't really understand that it was talking about what drove uncontrollably recurring rebirth. That wasn't really 
the way that I understood it, but I understood it on the Dharma light level that this was how various emotional and psychological problems arose in myself. And very useful, very helpful. Then came the 12 links of dependent arising, and this was very complicated. And although it says straightforwardly that this describes how rebirth works, I must say that uh, it didn't really sink in that that was really the point of it. I tried to understand it more in terms of this life. By this Dharma light level, it's hard to take future lives and rebirth seriously. It's not part of our tradition. I certainly didn't grow up with that. But I was open-minded. I didn't reject future lives. I gave rebirth the benefit of the doubt. In other words, I said, okay, provisionally, let's accept it and see what follows from that. And if what follows from it makes sense and is helpful, then maybe rebirth is, you know, possible it actually exists. But Easy I don't know. Then came the topic of renunciation. And so I understood this to mean not just a simplistic level of I have to give up everything and go live in a cave. At least I understood that that much didn't make that mistake. But rather I understood it to mean a determination to be free from samsara, from all this suffering. And sure, I was willing to, or at least I wanted to give up the suffering and the problems that I had at this age. I had certainly quite a few emotional problems than any other young person. And I certainly wanted to be free of the causes of the problems, but I understood this probably on quite a superficial level. Okay, how wonderful it would be not to ever get angry again. It would be great to get over anger and greed and these sort of things. Does that mean that when my favorite food is on the table, I'm willing to give up my greed with which I want to eat as much of it as I possibly can? Well, that's another question. We go on from renunciation, and the next thing is the three higher trainings as the way to get free of samsara. So training in higher ethical discipline, concentration, and wisdom, which means discriminating awareness to discriminate reality from fantasy. And this made sense, and I could relate to that. And fine, that's the intermediate scope, basically understood on a Dharma-like level of wanting to get rid of all my emotional problems. And Buddhism explained very nicely how these problems arose, and it gave a very good direction about how to work on overcoming them. So now we're ready to go on to advanced scope. (laughs) And now we read about how, first of all, we need to have equanimity toward everyone. Okay, that fit in very nicely with civil rights movements and this type of thing, you know, women's lib and so on. So, hey, equanimity. As for extending it to mosquitoes and cockroaches, well, (laughs) let's... Let's go on to the next point. <laughs> Actually, I'll let you hit on how I dealt with that. I'm a great fan of science fiction, especially Star Trek. And I lived in India, the land of insects. As I was used to joke for the travel advertisement for India, they should have, if you like insects, you'll love India. <laughs> so, I viewed these insects like aliens from other worlds. <laughs> and if I met an alien from another world and they had six legs and wings or whatever, how terrible it would be to just want to step on it or 
spot it. And so I made a little bit of peace with the insects, as long as they were not in my bedroom. <laughs> if they were in my bedroom, I called them unacceptable life forms, and they had to leave. But by this time, I had become a good Buddhist. I had my red string, and I <laughs> would catch the insects. I became very good at that with a cup when they landed on the wall and put a paper underneath it and took them out. In fact, I even learned from my Tibetan friends how to catch a fly in the air. Although my Tibetan friends used to do this for fun. They would play with flies and they would catch it, shake it up in their hand, and then let it out and watch as the fly was very dizzy <laughs> flying and roar with laughter. Okay. I wasn't that advanced. <laughs> I took the fly outside. So then one thinks of everybody as having been our mother. This was pretty weird, but I had a pretty good relation with my mother, so that wasn't too difficult. And take responsibility to help others. Okay, this was fine as well. This was part of the civil liberties type of movement. You take some responsibility. And in order to really help everybody, you have to become a Buddha. What that meant, well, I don't know. I think it was a list of the qualities, but it was the best. So, okay, let's aim for the best. Yes, becoming a Buddha could help people probably more than going on a civil rights march. Although, not putting down the civil rights march is being useless, but here it, it's, uh, you know, gave a much larger vision of how you could help. But probably mixed with the image of a Buddha was the image of Superman. <laughs> so, then came the teachings on the six perfections, what I call the far-reaching attitudes, as the way to how to become a Buddha. And all of this made very good sense, generous, have ethical discipline, patient, perseverance. Who could fault that? It's perfect. And then the teachings on concentration, very detailed, amazing how detailed it was. And then the teachings on voidness, which were difficult to understand, of course, but very, very fascinating. And something that I certainly wanted to explore more deeply, and I saw that the more deeply I explored it, the more I could get rid of my fantasies about how I existed, about how everybody existed. And I love the Bodhisattva vows because it pointed out all the things to avoid that cause difficulties in relating with others. And this yep. I thought was great because I had a lot of difficulties relating with others. So here was a guidebook of what to avoid. Perfect. And bodhicitta, I understood, well, aiming to become a Buddha to help everybody. Nothing more profound than that. Seems simple enough. Okay. So, on this basis, this type of understanding, going through the Lamrim, okay, advanced level here, I'm an advanced level, I'm going to try to help everybody, I love everybody, we're all equal, and I'm going to try to become the best, you know, try to become a Buddha. And then I had a little bit of introduction to Tantra, and here it says you can do it in this lifetime. So that confirmed that you don't really have to think about future lives and all of that. It's all this lifetime. Perfect Dharma life. Okay, so this is, I think, how many of us end up after studying initially the Lamrim. And we think that if we're going to study it more deeply... What does that mean? That means learning the list of the eight this and the ten that and so on. And if we learn all these lists, 
Then we have deepened our understanding of Lam Rim. Okay, well, very good to learn all these details. It certainly helps to deepen our understanding, but we are still on the level of Dharma Light. So then, after a while, after studying that and studying many other things in Dharma, and by the way, I stayed in India, I went back just to hand in my dissertation, but uh, I basically lived in India as my home base for 29 years. And as I studied more, then I started trying to put more and more things together, as my teachers had advised. And it was always emphasized that the way that Buddha taught was really the best way for communicating the Dharma. And how did Buddha teach? Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. Uh, he taught in the structure of the Four Noble Truths. So, don't be so arrogant as to think that we could do better than the Buddha. And so I started to try to follow that advice and put the Lamrim together with the Four Noble Truths. So, Four Noble Truths, perhaps you're all familiar with that, but just very briefly talking about true facts. Four true facts. These are facts that Aryas, Arya being, it's usually translated as a noble one, those who have non-conceptual <laughs> cognition of voidness, reality, have seen that these four things are true. Well, that's what it's talking about. These are, these are facts. These are true. And those who haven't seen reality non-conceptually wouldn't really consider this as, as true. So, first are sufferings. Um, Buddha pointed out different levels of suffering, and so these are true. These truly are suffering. Right? You might not think that they're suffering. You know, regular people, ordinary people, and consider them suffering, like our ordinary happiness. But you know, if you look more deeply, these truly are forms of suffering. Right? Because you never have enough, it's never satisfying, it never lasts, etc., etc. And then Buddha pointed out the causes of suffering and said, these truly are the causes. You might not make that connection, but these truly are the causes. That's true. Really. And then he pointed out that it's possible to have a stopping. It's usually translated as cessation. It means a stopping. Stop forever. You might not think that it's possible to stop this suffering forever, to get rid of it forever, but... This is true. It really is possible. It's true. Here is a true stopping of it. It's a true stopping, not a temporary stopping, but truly stopped, finished forever. And here is a pathway mind. You don't think of it just as path, remember? It's a pathway mind. Here's a state of mind that if you develop it, it truly will get rid of suffering and its causes and truly will be able to bring about... True stopping of the suffering that it's called. Yeah. So, here's the Four Noble Truths in simple form. And it is uh, quite helpful to look at the three scopes of Lam Rim in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So, using that structure, if we look at the initial scope teachings, right, the true suffering here is the suffering of the worst rebirth states. You know, there's three types of true suffering. The suffering of suffering, which is general unhappiness, right? Unhappiness that can accompany any sense cognition. So seeing, hearing, feeling pain. Or it could accompany a mental state. 
right? We understand it that way, that it's a very large encompassing type of suffering. So, exemplified by the suffering of the lower states, and the cause of that is acting destructively. And the true stopping of that would be to have a stopping of worse rebirths, so better rebirths. And the true pathway that would lead to that is, first of all, refuge, safe direction in my life, and actually follow the Dharma teachings and the Buddha, examples of the Buddha and the Arya Sangha of avoiding destructive behavior. So, this is initial scope within the structure of the Four Noble Truths. And even though studied and learned that the true cause of the disturbing emotions and the unawareness that underlies it and so on, here, what we're talking about is even when the disturbing emotions arise, don't act them out. So, I still may get angry with you, but I will shut my mouth and not yell or say something nasty. Because I understand that if I yell and say something nasty, it's just going to cause more unhappiness. Okay, so that is certainly a deeper understanding of the initial scope. Then we go to the intermediate scope. And here, the true suffering is the second two types of suffering that Buddha pointed out. Suffering of change which is speaking about our ordinary type of happiness, which accompanies either a sense perception or a mental state. And it's a problem because it doesn't last, it's never satisfying, it changes into unhappiness. We don't know when it's going to change. And we eat our food that we enjoy so much. And if this were true happiness, the more we ate, the happier we would become. But obviously, once we reach a certain point, the more we eat, it just makes us sick. It hurts. And also, what is the uh, true suffering here, uh, more importantly, on this intermediate scope, is the third type of suffering. And this is called the all-encompassing, affecting suffering. It's a bit of an awkward expression in English, I know. It's all-encompassing, so it's referring to every moment of our existence, and it affects everything that we experience. And it brings on the first two types of suffering, so it affects and brings that on. And it's referring to our uncontrollably recurring aggregate factors of our experience. So, it's referring to the body, mind, we put it very simply, and all the various mental factors and things that make up each moment of our experience, which is going on moment to moment, not just in this lifetime, but in all lifetimes. And they are coming from disturbing emotions and uh, the karma that is built up by that, and they contain more disturbing emotions and karma and are going to perpetuate even more. And they then form the basis or the context within which we experience the first two types of suffering, unhappiness and ordinary happiness, which is uh, going up and down all the time, this unhappiness and unhappiness. (coughs) And it recurs, and obviously we have no idea, are we going to feel happy or unhappy in the next moment? Okay, so that's the true suffering here, in the immediate level. cause of it is uh, disturbing emotions and karma that's built up by that, of how... We exist, how others exist, how everything exists. That is usually translated as ignorance, but I 
object to that translation since it implies that we're stupid. It doesn't mean that we're stupid. There are two interpretations of what the word means. Either we just simply don't know how we exist, or we understand it in a reversed way. But it certainly doesn't mean that we're stupid. Okay. So, this is the true cause of our uncontrollably recurring rebirth, or samsara. That's what samsara is all about. And the true stopping of that would be liberation. So, higher ethical discipline, higher concentration, higher discriminating awareness. So, that's the intermediate scope presented in the structure of the Four Noble Truths. Then, if we look at the advanced scope, the true suffering is referring to here the uncontrollably recurring rebirth of everybody, not just me. So, three types of true suffering for everybody. And we would have to include in here my inability to be able to help them to overcome this. And the uh, true causes of everybody else's suffering, of course, is the same as the true causes of my own on the intermediate level. But if I look at what is the true cause of my inability to be able to help them most, well, on one level, we can identify it as my selfishness, concern just about myself, and fine, that's there, although if we think a little bit more deeply, we could have thrown that on the intermediate level in terms of a disturbing emotion. Uh-huh. We included it there. Uh, I must say it's a little bit difficult to understand how we would only have concern for ourselves if we, in fact, got rid of all our disturbing emotions. I mean, it's difficult to understand if we got rid of attachment to myself. And if I got rid of naivety about the situation of others, how I could still have only selfishness, self-concern. Even if we uh, say, well, I'm only concerned about myself because I don't think I can really help everybody. I don't think I can really become a Buddha. One could argue that that also is a form of naivety. Naivety of Buddha nature. But in any case, we could uh, put the self-concern here as a true cause. But more importantly, we need to put in here the fact that our mind makes things appear in impossible ways. But more importantly, we need to put in here the fact that our mind makes things appear in impossible ways. Our mind makes things appear as though they were truly established, truly existent from their own side. Without going into detail about that, I know that can be a bit of jargon, but it makes things appear, put it in simple language, as if they are just existing by themselves, encapsulated in plastic. And because of that, we can't see the interconnectedness of everything, particularly in terms of cause-and-effect relationships. So we're not able to see all the causes of why somebody is the way that they are now, and why they have all the problems they have now, and we can't foresee all the effects that would come from teaching this person this or that. Because when we look at the person, what appears is just the person in front of us, and we think that's it. Because when we look at the person, what appears is just the person in front of us, and we think that's it. Existing there by themselves, independently of all their relationships, all the causes and, and stuff, and we have no idea what would be the effect of anything that we taught this person. So, because of that, we don't know how best to help them. Yes. That's the cause of our inability to help everybody. 
Right? The fact that our mind makes things appear to exist in this impossible way. So if they existed all by themselves, true stopping of that would be the initial state of a Buddha, which a Buddha is able to see the interconnectedness of everything. He therefore knows what really is uh, the problem with this person, what has you know, all the factors that have gone into it, and what would be the best way to help this person. And what would be the true pathway that would lead to that, well, it would be an understanding of voidness, but not simply with the force of renunciation behind it, but with the force of bodhicitta. So we need both renunciation and bodhicitta as it's the force of the mind that understands voidness. And, of course, to develop bodhicitta, we need to develop equanimity, love, compassion, etc., Six far-reaching attitudes, and all these teachings we find in the events. Scope. So, having put together the Four Noble Truths with the three scopes, and, well, one could think, oh, pretty clever. And, okay, now I've understood a little bit more deeply the three scopes. But have I really gone beyond Dharma life? Uh, probably not. At least not on an emotional level. I've just understood how Dharma life could work in this lifetime, much more deeply, right? more profound than just learning the lists. So, in order to really be able to integrate these three levels of motivating mental frameworks, to really believe them, to really function in that manner, then we have to go back to our definition of motivation. Right? It is it's two aspects, remember? There is an aim. What are we aiming for, and what is the emotion that drives us to reach that goal? And to aim for a goal, it's absolutely imperative for it to be, if it's going to be sincere, to not only have a very clear idea of what that goal actually is, what it means, but also to be firmly convinced that it's possible to achieve it. If we are not convinced that it's possible to achieve it, and in addition, you know, say, well, Buddha could achieve it, but I can't. See, so we need to be convinced that not only is it achievable, but it, but I can achieve it. And when we are convinced that it's possible to achieve this goal, that I'm capable of achieving this goal, then we can sincerely aim for it. Right? It's just wishful thinking. So, this point comes from Nagarjuna's presentation in his Bodhicitta commentary, in which he says, For those of sharp intelligence, they would develop deepest Bodhicitta first, which is referring to the understanding of voidness, and then after that, the relative Bodhicitta, which is the aiming for enlightenment in order to benefit others. Because it's when you develop deepest Bodhicitta, in other words, the understanding of voidness, then you are convinced that liberation and enlightenment is possible. And then you can develop the relative bodhicitta, the wish to achieve that in order to benefit everyone. Right? So that's for those of sharpest capacity. And for those with more ordinary capacity, first you develop the wish to achieve enlightenment, to benefit others, relative bodhicitta, and then gradually you develop deepest bodhicitta, the understanding of voidness, as the understanding that actually will bring about liberation and enlightenment. Nagarjuna then says, uh, I will explain 
this commentary on Bodhicitta from the point of view of those of sharpest intelligence, and therefore he explains deepest Bodhicitta first. And so, this is what we need to apply now back to the Lamrim in order to really develop the real thing Dharma. We have to become convinced that rebirth exists, which means to become convinced that the mental continuum has no beginning and no end, and therefore we would aim for better future rebirths. Because the mental continuum is going to go on, we're totally convinced of that. Then we have to, uh, on the intermediate scope, first of all become totally convinced that liberation is possible, which means understanding that there can be a true stopping, third noble truth, of disturbing emotions, unawareness, and karma. So that means we have to be convinced of the purity of the mental continuum that is not stained as part of its nature by unawareness, disturbing emotions, and so on. And on the advanced scope, we need to be convinced that enlightenment is possible. In other words, back to our Four Noble Truths analysis, that it is possible to get rid of the deceptive appearance-making, that this is also a fleeting stain. It's not part of the nature of the mind to make appearances of impossible ways of existing. The mental continuum is pure of that as well. So this is what we need to work on in order to really internalize and integrate these three scopes. Our conviction that these three goals are possible to attain, and I can attain it. And if you think about it, what have we just been talking about? We've been talking about the teachings on Buddha nature. And Gampopa, in his Jewel Ornament of Liberation, starts out with that. That this is what enables this whole process. Sure. So Gampopa hints at exactly what we've been talking about now in this last step. I mean, of course, we have to fill in a tremendous amount more depth of teachings on Buddha nature from just what Gampopa presents in his text. But he indicates the importance of understanding this at the beginning in order to really develop all the other pathways of mind that follow on a sincere level. And how is it usually described? Well, we need to understand Buddha nature to give us encouragement. Como es que? possible. So this is exactly what Nagarjuna was speaking about. And the conduit of that inspiration is, of course, the guru, the spiritual teacher. So, we see, so many things can be integrated here in our discussion of Lamrim. So, we'll stop here for the evening. And then tomorrow, I'd like to start an in-depth discussion of how we become convinced that our mental continuum has no beginning and no end, that liberation is possible, and that enlightenment is possible. These, I think, are the most essential points for really getting the real thing Lamrim, not just the Dharma-like version of Lamrim. So let's end with the dedication. I think whatever understanding, whatever positive force has come from this, we'll go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.